Open your Bibles, if you would, this morning to 1 Peter chapter 4. Right? We're going to be setting aside our, uh, our Corinthians study just for a little bit because we're coming to some real critical passages. Not that the other stuff isn't critical. I don't want to create that impression. But we started this study in Corinthians because people had some specific questions. And rather than use the approach of going through Scripture and handpicking verses to try to answer those questions, we said, let's pick a book of Scripture, a letter that addresses those questions and follow it. And we're coming to some of those questions uh, in these next couple chapters. And to be frank, I'm not ready to start that yet because I have been relaxing for the last two weeks. Not that I wasn't studying, I was just studying something else. So I'm not just ready, I'm not ready to start that this morning. So we're going to look uh, at something else. Um, and actually, what really kind of zeroed that for me is I listened to uh, Pastor Scott's message uh, on the website, Facebook page, and it was fantastic, and it laid the groundwork for what I am going to share this morning. So thank you for doing that, talking about acting out the love of Christ and being the love of Christ in this world. That really sets the stage for this. Uh, one more thing before we get to the text. It was brought to my attention about three weeks ago just how wide a, a um, impact we're having through the Facebook page. So just continue to pray. Uh, Aaron Helmerich showed me a map of where we're getting people signing. I had no idea people in India were listening to us. That may have been one person in India, but somebody in India is listening to us. So I um, want to encourage you, be in prayer, uh, that that will continue to have an impact. And for those who may be listening to this morning's message, wherever you may be, we um, are glad you're with us and pray that you will be blessed by everything that is shared here this morning. So, having said all that, First uh, Peter chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment, sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint, as each one has received the special gift employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so as by the strength which God supplies for it. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Lord, thank you for your word. And um, as we look to it this morning, I pray our hearts and our minds would simply be open to what you have for us. Again, last week, Pastor Scott was talking about um, being the love of God, expressing the love of God. And that comes to our attention, or as, as he showed through a, a fascinating conversation that Jesus had with a legal expert who approached him with the question, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and your neighbor is yourself. And I really appreciated uh, some of the, the, the insights that Scott, how the guy just kind of jumped over the whole love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, like he had that down pat, right? Well, good luck with that, yeah. But then he went to this issue of who's my neighbor, and that whole explanation, and um, appreciated all that was said. And I really appreciated the emphasis of changing people's lives and even changing our world by simply loving people, extending the love of, of Christ to our neighbor, to that person reaching out and eat, how that impacts lives and changes lives. Well, well, Peter, in this portion of his letter, is writing about just that idea, about expressing the love of Christ. And I think one of the questions we always ask when we're challenged in that area, how do I live out, how do I, through my life, express the love of God? How do I do that? 
What does that look like? And Peter uses one particular word in this passage we read this morning that really zeroes in on that. And that's what I want to really, really talk about this morning. Peter writes what he writes with a sense of extreme urgency. He says the end of all things is near. Uh, that's a phrase that sometimes kind of freaks us out because, well, it has been 2,000 years and he hasn't. Well, that expression, the end of all things of near, the, speaks of the imminence. And he's speaking of Christ's return and everything that is connected with Christ's return. That's that kind of thing that we're used to thinking of. It might happen tomorrow or it might happen the next day, but it's probably not going to happen today. And that's not correct. It may not happen tomorrow. But at the same token, we may not get to tomorrow. It's right there. It means it's right there. It could literally happen any time. And Peter addresses that question in his second epistle about those who mock, saying, well, he hasn't come yet. He says, in the last days, mockers will come mocking. Right? Where is his coming? And then Peter makes it absolutely clear that, well, we're waiting, but it will come. Right? So the challenge in that understanding, the urgency and the imminence of his return, is to love our neighbors as ourselves and to do that with a sense of urgency. But how do we do that? Well, Peter begins in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. That's that sense of urgency. Verse 8, keep fervent in your love for one another. That's expressing the centrality of love. And then in verse 9 is where he gives a real good way to do that. How to express love. He says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. And that's the word I want to focus in on this morning, being hospitable. I want to first talk about, just briefly, the importance of being hospitable. Hospitality, it's important. And then take some time to look at what the word actually means. And then finally ask the question, how do we get started into it if you're not already doing that kind of thing? First off, the importance of hospitality. This is something that is just not a big deal in our Western culture. We look upon hospitality and as broad a sense of the word that some folks are into and some folks are not, and you do it if you like to do it. It's kind of at that level. We don't really see it as a biblical imperative, right? Interestingly, interestingly, in both Timothy and Titus, Paul lays out a whole list of requirements or at least at the very least, guidelines for what to look for in someone that's going to be in ministry, right? And I have been in my almost now 40 years of ministry through any number of interviews and evaluations and different things, whether to be credentialed as a minister or appointed as a missionary, whatever, and gone through these interviews where you're evaluated. And those passages in Timothy and Titus pretty much provide the outline, you know, you know, talking about being able to teach and talking about not being addicted to wine and all those different things, and we all know the list, right? I have never been asked a single question about hospitality. Pastor Joyce has been through a lot of those same interviews, never asked a single question about hospitality. Um, I won't put Pastor on the spot, but I will bet he's never been asked a single You have? Maybe. Oh, we're going to have to talk about that, right? But I've, and I've asked, I've asked credential people from other fellowships. You've been through the interview? Yes. Everybody asked about hospitality? What? It's just not a big deal with us, right? We see it as optional. Now, lest you think it's only for people in ministry, it, Paul, in his right letter to Timothy, also speaks of the widow's list, right? First century, early church, somebody came to Christ. They pretty much cut off all their other relations, right? 
And for a widow that had no other source of support to turn to Christ, being cut off from her family, being destitute, so the church had to step in and create a list of people they would support. And typically widows were those who they would provide food for and other necessities. Paul says in Timothy, before you put a widow on that list, make sure that she's really you know, kept up her end of the deal. And one of the things he talks about is practicing hospitality. Right? And then, of course, the Bible talks about practicing hospitality by which some have even entertained angels unaware. So it's not an accessory. It's a central part of our Christianity. And then there's the practical side of it, the biblical side of it. We just talked about the practical side of it. Um, I am convinced that one of the reasons Middle Eastern culture um, is so focused on hospitality is because for so much of its history, the Middle East has been a place where people killed one another a lot. Just kind of, it's going on, right? One of the best ways to keep people from killing you is feed them. Yeah, and I'm not making that up. How many remember when, when, when Brad Otto stood up and testified about, because he's, of course, he's a contractor, he's an electrician involved with contractors and subcontractors, not always the friendliest environment, you know? And how whenever he has a problem with a boss, he brings them lunch. And it always changes the dynamic, right? You feed somebody, they're less likely to, you know, if I you sticky or whatever, right? It helps. Hospitality has its advantages. So it's really, really important. But what exactly is hospitality? What are the words that are translated in the New Testament as hospitality? Um, Two words, one's a noun, one an adjective, they're almost the same word. They are philonexia, philonexia, and philoxenos, right? Probably the easiest one of those to, to wrap your mouth around is philoxenos, philoxenos, right? And it, as you can probably guess, is for two Greek words, right? Which is very common. We do that in English. The Greeks do it a lot. But this is an especially unique example of two words being put together because this is two words, philoxenos, that don't belong together, right? We'll talk about that in just a minute. So let's just kind of look at the, these two words really quickly. Philos, philos, first one. Uh, it's an old word, goes all the way back to early Greek, and it means love. It's one of several Greek words that can be translated as love. Now, one of the unique things about the New Testament is one of the other words for love that we're all familiar with, agape, was elevated to the highest form of love. Jesus has greater love greater agape, has no one than this than to lay down his life for another, right? That was weird in their minds because in, in the Greek language of the first century, that wasn't the highest form of love. Philos was. Phileo love. It's that love of kinship, of friendship. It's that really strong brotherly love. It's the love that shows common ground. It's a bond that is deeply emotional, deeply personal, um, I'm going to have to ask for some help here from someone who maybe in the biological world, medical world. Philia in taxonomy is what? It's family, isn't it? I know the word philia appears in taxonomy. I couldn't track it down, but I believe it's a family group in taxonomy. It shows having things in common. That's the essence of philos, having common ground to be connected. And again, it's a deep connection, right? In modern Greek, for example, when you greet your friend, hello, Phile, Phile, my friend, right? If you want to correct your friend, 
right? If you get your friends out of line, you know that point where a friend can correct you where nobody else can? What do you say? Come on, man, Why check yourself. What are you doing? It's, it's a correction. So glad I can't see Sophia's face right now. It's a correction that is based on, it's one of her favorites. Yeah, it's, it's a correction that's based on a strong personal bond, right? Um, it's, it's really, really strong friendship, connection. Uh, in the Septuagint, this is great. And the Septuagint, again, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and is so important for us, because when you talk about you know, the language of the New Testament, Greek, you got this 3,000-year arc of history. Well, words change, right? You want to be able to nail it down to the way it was used in the first century. Well, they translated the Old Testament into Greek right before that. And it provides a really good like dictionary for us to know exactly how words were supposed to be understood. One of the places where the word philos, right, shows up in the Septuagint is this one, Proverbs 26, where it says, faithful are the travmata philu. Faithful is the trauma of a friend. Not drama, that's a whole different subject. Friends, drama, different. But the trauma, the wounds of a friend. Proverbs 26, faithful are the wounds of a friend. It's that really close, deep, emotional bond. That's the first half of philoxenos. Philoxenos. Xenos is completely different. It's like 180 degrees out. It is almost incompatible. Again, it's as old as philos goes all the way back to the earliest Greek, and it really hasn't changed. It speaks of the stranger, the alien, the one who's identified as outside of the family, outside of the known group. They are, by definition, different. Nothing in common. And because nothing's in common, they are completely inappropriate for any form of relationship. Right? There's just no room for compromise here, right? Probably all seen my big fat Greek wedding, right? When Constantine learns that his daughter is going to marry a guy who's not a Greek, what are the first two words out of his mouth? You probably don't remember because they were Greek. He says, Inexenos! He's a stranger. And then he kind of goes on about the guy's hair and some other things. But the real problem is in his hair. It's that he's of another group. There's just It's incomprehensible to him that his daughter is going to marry this guy because he's a stranger. He's Xenos, right? All right. And there's examples of this thinking in both the Old Testament and the New. Uh, one of the best is Ruth. In the story of Ruth, Ruth has gone out in the field and she's gleaning. And this is the first time she meets Boaz. And Boaz comes up and what does Boaz say to her? I want you to keep gleaning in my fields. Don't go in another field and my, my servants will protect you. And that blows her away. She's got no room in her worldview for that. And what does she say? Listen to, listen to what, the, what the text says. She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a Senos, stranger? It's incomprehensible there, that he would even notice her, let alone provide for her the opportunity to glean in his fields and be protected by his service, right? It just didn't fit their worldview, right? Now, the word comes into the New Testament as well, but it's so much more prominent in the Old Testament, which only makes sense because the whole thing with being the people of Israel was to be separate. 
was to be different. God called them to be a separate people. Well, when you identify a group of people by being separate, you've also identified everybody else, right? They are the ethne, they're the nations, there's the Gentiles. They are the Gentiles, foreigners, right? Now, where that shows up, and that, 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 mind, that mindset continues uninterrupted until the Incarnation. And in the Incarnation, something extraordinary happens. The one who was wholly other, wholly different, crossed that barrier and came in to those who were total strangers. And, and, when, and when did that hit the disciples? When did the disciples see it happen? In living color. Well of Samaria. John's Gospel. Jesus and the disciples have gone to the well of Samaria. Jesus has sent the disciples away. They're going to buy food. A woman shows up to draw water. You know the story. Jesus asks her for a drink of water, and she can't believe it. She finds it completely incredulous, right? She doesn't make any sense to her. She says, how is it that you, even though you're a Jew, are asking me for a drink of water, though I am a Samaritan woman? Everything she says, that entire conversation, is based on the understanding that she is a stranger to him, he is a stranger to her. Therefore, even something as simple as drawing a, glass, you know, a pitcher of water and handing it to him was out of a question. There was no basis for any communication, conversation, exchange at all, right? Xenos drives the conversation. She is Xenos to Jesus, Jesus is Xenos to her, but Jesus is impervious to that. He's impervious to that reality because he may be Xenos to her. He may be completely unknown to her, but what does he say to her? Go tell your husband and call him here. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right, you don't. You've had five and the one you're with now. What is he saying to her? I know you. I know you. I may be a stranger to you, but you are no stranger to me. And he completely bridges that gap. He bridges the gap from stranger to philos, from stranger to member of community. John 10:16, Jesus puts it this way. He says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. Other fold, not of this group, not of this Filio, I must bring them also. They will hear my voice. They will become one flock with one shepherd. In the person of Christ, Xenos simply ceases to be. Okay? Now, in order to do that, something has to happen. In order for that to happen, something has to happen. Right? You can hop back to the Old Testament and see the groundwork for that happening. For example, uh, in Numbers 9.14, um, Moses said, Moses said, uh, one statue, there shall be one statue, both for alien and for the native of the land. Right? Sounds inclusive, right? One statue, one law for the alien, same law for the Jew, right? Sounds wholly inclusive, right? But in order to enjoy that, something had to happen. That's numbers. You hop farther back, and in Exodus, you get the details. What had to happen? In Exodus, it went this way. A foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may take part like one born 
in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat it. So the alien or stranger, the Xenos, could enjoy all the benefits of life among the separated people, but to do that, he has to become one. Literally, in order to enjoy the privileges of being in the family, he has to cease to become Xenos and his whole household. You can't have one foot in both ponds. Either Xenos or Philos. One or the other. One or the other. What has to happen is the person of Christ. For in Christ, the two are made one. That is how the flock becomes one. Now, I've had two experiences, just share really briefly, and I know some of you have heard about these, um, that illustrate this to me really, really powerfully. Um, we are at Anchorage, and we were in one of those secondhand sporting goods stores. forget the name of it. And the salesman, in the process of, of closing out the deal, saw my name and proudly announced that he was a Turk. Okay, where's this going, right? And the first thing he says is, you know they got it wrong. Who's they? The historians. He said, we won the Trojan War. <laughs> well, my first thought is, first of all, you're, you're wrong. <laughs> the second thought is, they weren't even Turks, man. The Turks hadn't even gotten there yet. They were Persians, right? But thirdly, and this is what I actually said was, man, that happened 3,000 years ago. Get over it. <laughs> Time to let it go. doesn't work with the Greeks and the Turks, even to this very day. They make the Hatfields and the McCoys look like great neighbors, right? For 3,000 years. And whacking away at one another, right? Extreme example of Xenos. The tragedy of that is they can't see they have so much in common, right? That's why they're doing it. But it's this total idea of no reaction, right? That's where his mind totally was, right? The minute he saw I had a Greek name, boom! Animosity, right? I don't know the guy. All right. Other example, about two years ago, three years ago, one of the pastors here in the valley had a speaker come in, and I forget if he was an evangelist or what, but he's a Turk. And he's from Turkey. And I meet the guy. He's a brother in the Lord. I couldn't wait to shake my hand, put my arm around him. He's a brother in the Lord. Because in the person of Christ, that entire distinction is erased. I don't care whose uncle killed who. Right? And then to read that this, this morning in the report out of Bridges, to know that Greeks, or a Greek and a Syrian who are married to one another, are going to Germany to help plant Turkish-speaking churches. That is a God thing if ever there was one. Ever there was one, right? In Xenos, or rather in Christ, Xenos ceases to be. So we are capable of expressing philoxenia, the love of a stranger. Because in that, we bring the stranger into our world, right? I love that old hymn, Come Thou Font. I was listening to it just this last week, and one verse just really stood out. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, bought me with his precious blood. See, that's what my Turkish brother and I share in common. We are both rescued. We are both bought with his blood. When we see the one with whom we don't think we have anything in common, right? The text says somewhere, I, I thought of it just this morning, so I didn't have a chance to look it up, but it speaks of God who made of one race all mankind. 
the idea that humanity is a multiplicity of races is non-biblical. We share that in common. And that is the basis for loving the stranger, right? Jesus stepping into our world to bring us into his world is the model for us. Him stepping into our darkness. In my probably overly active imagination, I imagine this point in history, in before the creation history of the father suggesting the plan of salvation to his son and the son saying, you mean go live among them? Have you seen those people? No, they haven't been created yet. Right. Him stepping into the chaos and the darkness and the sin of our world was the ultimate example of loving a stranger. So we have this model to follow of the obligation being ours to step in to the world of the lost. Right? So you always think of, of, of hospitality as just being well, inviting somebody over to dinner or something like that. It's so much bigger than that. It's every time we put out the effort to bridge the gap to reach somebody else, right? And there's some things we can do. I just came up with a list of things we can simply remember as we approach this whole thing. Because the thing is, I can't give you a cut and dry plan. This is how you do it this week, right? That's not how it works. We individually and as family units need to seek the face of God, asking the question, how do I reach those around me who are estranged from you, God? How do we as a family reach those who may live next to us, but they're a thousand miles away in, in, in the eyes of, of, of God? How do we bridge that gap? There is no simple plan. It's a dependence on the guidance of the Holy Spirit and seeking Him through His Word. But there are some things to remember. And I just came up with a list um, because it works for me. Uh, first off, remember our oneness, our commonness. Again, there is but one race. At the very least, we start with that in common. Even the people we find the least in common with, we have that in common. Remember our need. I needed somebody to reach out to me. Right. All too often, you know, some of us are more comfortable, like individualistically, solo kind of thing. Some of us are really comfortable that, and that's perfectly fine. But let's not fall for the idea that we can make it on our own. Right? As English poet John Donne said, "No man is an island entire to himself. Each is a piece of the continent, part of the main. If a clod, referring to dirt clod, if a clod be washed away by the sea." Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were. Any man's death diminishes from me, for I am involved in mankind. And then he said, Therefore sin not to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. The humanity that we share, right? Remember our need. Remember the time. St. Peter's whole point is the time is short. Putting something like this off is folly. Number four, remember that hospitality isn't always easy or natural. For some people it is. Some people can walk up to a total stranger and engage them in conversation, invite them out for a meal, boom, 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 I'm sitting there going, how did he do that, right? I'm the one that's not natural for. Does that mean I don't do it? No. That means it may require a little deliberate effort on my part. It may not go so smoothly. That's okay. The important thing is that we do it. We be the hand extended. Okay. 
Remember that another person's status as xenos, as stranger, as alien, is a starting point, not a permanent status. Nobody is, is locked into that status, right? right? It's never an absolute truth that somebody is an alien or a stranger, like my Turkish friend with whom I was so glad to shake hands and embrace. We need to be mindful that the one who was truly wholly other was glad to call us his own. Jesus is the one who moves us from Xenos to Philos with God, from alien and stranger to friend. We need to follow that model. It's good and important to remember that we never need to entertain evil. We never need to put our family at risk. They're not obligated to do that. We're not obligated to entertain evil, but we are obligated to reach out to sinners, right? And finally, remember to be guided by the Holy Spirit and to seek His guidance in this. Because this is nothing I would ever want to dare to do in my own wisdom or strength. That's a joke. Right? Peter said, remember the time is short. If we can simply get our brains wrapped around that idea, if we can simply remember how quickly the window of, of opportunity ends. It either ends when Jesus returns for us or when he calls us to him. But none of us know how long we have. Let us be found faithful in responding to his word. Father, I thank you, Lord, that, that in your goodness, I, Father, I think if we can just at that point where Jesus, the holy other one, perfect in his deity, chose to put on the veil, the veil of humanity, add human flesh to his already human existence, and dwell among us, Lord, is such an incredible example of how far you were willing to go to bridge the gap between yourself and lost humanity. Father, I pray as we go through this week, we'll have that picture in our mind, and we will actively look for opportunities, Father, because the time is short. We will actively look for opportunities to speak the truth of your gospel and to live, Father, the truth of your gospel, to be quick to say to others, yeah, I too know what sin is. And I walked in it, and I still struggle with it. But I know there is one, as we sang this morning, Father, who cast our sin into a sea without bottom or shore. What a confidence we have in that. Help that to be our guide this week in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.